Hey, Richard Gottlieb. Chris Burns. How you doing? I'm doing well. Got a good show today, my friend. We do. I am really excited because I always talk to this gentleman at Toy Fair, and it's one of the highlights of my Toy Fair, and we got robbed this year. So we get to share this with all of you. He's amazingly insightful, really fun guy. It's Philip Frank, who is the CEO North America for Ravensburger and the global head of games. And Philip, thank you so much for taking the time and joining us today. Thank you. I'm very happy that we get to connect. I miss Toy Fair 2, like we all do. And this is the Playground Podcast with me, Chris Byrne, my co-host and cohort, Richard Gottlieb. And we are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, the Toy Guy, marketing and media agency, Chizcom, and Precise.tv. And Philip, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about your many roles and, and Ravensburger, and it's a pretty amazing company. Yeah, it's fantastic. You know, I'm, um, as you well know, but I'm not from the toy industry originally. You know, I'm Swedish and spent time in airline industries and I'm really good at selling dishwashers. And lately I was selling <laughs> here, um, but I've always loved to play and to compete. And I ran into uh, Clemens Meyer now four years ago, the CEO and also owner of Ravensburger. And it's been amazing. I love to play. They are, you know, Ravensburger as a company has 135 plus years of being super authentic regarding play and playful development. And it's just been fitting really well to who I am and how I want to lead and how I want to work. So, you know, I'm super excited about Ravensburger and how, the, how well Ravensburger after so long still fits into the market and into the consumer's mind. And, and what exactly are your responsibilities? I have two hats. Uh, like in every up-and-coming company, we do a lot of things. So I'm I'm the CEO of North America, so U.S. and Canada, for all business that we do here. Uh, but I'm also the head of global games for Ravensburger. So uh, I have development teams in the U.S. and in Europe that works on both global and local games uh, for around the world. Which leads me to a question about puzzles. Uh, last year was an extraordinary year for puzzles. Are you going to shoot yourself this year, or do you think it's going to be as good as last year? You know, uh, don't we all love puzzle these days? <laughs> <laughs> well, the numbers just went through the roof last year. Yeah. And I'm just wondering how companies are planning for this coming year. Uh, there's going to be some tough numbers to beat. You know, the comp is hard. On the other side, and this goes both for puzzles and for games, we had seen, you know, high double-digit growth for three, four years before the pandemic, both on games and puzzles, particularly on adult puzzles. That growth had been there for many years, both in the industry and certainly for Ravensburger. And the same thing for games, particularly also kid-adult and adult games more than, than children games. There was already consumer-driven demand in the market. Um, and then the pandemic came and these underlying trends that were there before about coming together, about having, you know, my time, mindfulness, all of these things, they were just accelerated with the need for more home entertainment. So looking forward, we're not too worried, honestly. Of course, it's going to be hard in the short term, but what really has happened is that, you know, existing trends were accelerated. And now as per MPD, I think there's 24 million new buyers of games and puzzles in 2020 versus 2019 they all had these magic moments of playing together, be it puzzles or games. And they are, you know, they're going to continue. Maybe not all the time as they have during the year, 
but there's certainly a new base from where we were before the pandemic. So we're very, very bullish. I think what you just said was fascinating. I hadn't heard anybody else say that, Chris, about the underlying demand for puzzles that had been there for a while. Right. And the reasons you gave, which were very, very interesting about mindfulness and, and being with people. It's, it's, thank you for that. It's, it's a very insightful. Do you think oh. that the, the trend accelerated in the United States? We've been hearing in other instances that things that might have happened by 2025 happened in 2020 because of the acceleration caused by the pandemic. There's some magic to this. I, I can't tell why. You know, we're a global puzzle company. I think we're the, the world's leading puzzle brand. Overnight, around March 10 to 12th, in the U.S., we saw puzzles go from an obscure search ranking to top 10 in everything searched for on Google and Amazon. You know, we were ahead of toilet paper and hand sanitizer and stayed there for many, many weeks, uh, months even. And that happened not only in the U.S. and Canada, that happened in Germany, in France. You know, that happened all over the world at the same time. So, you know, why everyone turned particularly to puzzles when this pandemic happened it's just amazing. There's something innate in humans that apparently connect to puzzles when they need a little sense of control and when they have extra time on their hands. I've also thought that it had to do with the fact that it's something a family can do together, but it's not competitive like a game. So it, it's actually kind of mellow for the family to do together. You're not really going to fight over a piece of sky, for example. <laughs> there are some very competitive puzzlers out there, Chris, but you know, I, I've told this many times, you know, I have teenagers, as you well know, they're, you know, 19, 17 and 14. Um, and my style of parenting has always been, you know, to try to look them in the eye and ask them, you know, what's going on? Tell me. And that worked really well up until, you know, they turned 12, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Now I look them in the eye and ask them something and they, you know, shrug. But puzzles or even games, but particularly puzzles is a great conversation starter just because of what you just said, because you don't have to speak. You know, you sit there and you you work together. And then at one point, all of a sudden, they open up and you're right there and you just listen. Uh, it was actually Clemens, you know, my boss, who, who gave me this advice when I started at Ravensburger. Day one, he told me, put out a puzzle and just have it out. You know, just have it sit there and people won't touch it for days. Then all of a sudden, when someone is there, just slowly sneak in there, sit beside them, and you're going to have a moment. And it's true. You know, it's a really good individual activity, but it's a really good intimate family and friends activity, too. Uh, and our, our research also shows that it's not only puzzling is not only an individual activity anymore. It's, it's a real reason to come together. I have some history with puzzles myself. I, I worked in the industry, did some work with uh, Rosart. They had the Kodak puzzles. I worked for Western Publishing Company. We had the Guild puzzles, et cetera. And my recollection was the demographic, what we used to say was it was a few people who did a lot of puzzles and they were mostly women. And I'm wondering if that has changed. I have to be a little careful here since I know a lot of competitors are listening to this. And, you know, we see so many new players coming into the puzzle space. But I think it's pretty common knowledge that the core puzzler before the pandemic was a 55-year-old plus woman. We had seen trends in specific areas of the U.S., particularly where a much younger audience was starting to puzzle. And, you know, we saw book clubs turn into puzzle clubs and, and so on. It's a whole experience. You know, if we could sell a puzzle with a bottle of wine and a good play playlist, that would be awesome as a as a you know as a full experience home package. 
it was very interesting. In May and June, all of a sudden, the largest group of people buying puzzles was actually 20 years younger. It was women's, you know, 30 to 35. So immediately when the pandemic came, the age of people puzzling, you know, went down substantially. Then as the pandemic went on, the 50 plus segment came roaring back. So now the cake is much bigger. It's still dominated. The largest segment is still, you know, a woman who's, you know, 50, 55 plus. But there are much more young people, even in their 20s, that are puzzling and are finding it, you know, very fulfilling. Uh, And we don't think they'll go away. Before the pandemic, puzzles were somewhat casual and i know people who have bought puzzles every week pretty much yeah. it with within the pandemic what do you think is going to happen even though your crystal ball may not be completely crystal clear what do you think is going to happen on the on the other side of this will puzzling still be a family activity are you, are you looking at that when i came to the business i looked and my puzzle team was really unhappy with me for you know, thinking of this like this, but I looked at puzzling as, you know, a somewhat mossy activity. You know, I never met someone who came up to me and shook my hand and said, hi, I'm a puzzler. You know, it was not something that was seemed to be connected to people's identity. When I started at Ravensburger, so many times that when people hear I'm from Ravensburger, they walk up and they start to talk about how they love Ravensburger puzzles. You know, they love puzzling, but they particularly love the Ravensburger brand. And they have been loving it for years, you know, for decades. I always have this feeling that it's the secret favorite pastime of Americans. It seems like everyone is puzzling, but no one talks about it. And it's almost like the pandemic helped people to share it. And it was okay. So I think it might be on its way to become, you know, a a very well shared kind of coming out of the closet. I'm a puzzler. I stand for it. It's cool. I will post online about what I do as puzzles. I will, you know, tell my friends, I will invite them to puzzle. It's not like it's, it's going to be the hippest thing out there, but I think it's very much something that is respected uh, and that people will be more willing to share. One of the influencer, Karen Puzzles, she's a a Ravensburger ambassador that works for us too. She had 10,000 followers at the start of the pandemic. She now has 100,000 followers. Reddit went from, I don't know the starting point, but they're they're 300% bigger now in their puzzle thread than they were at the start of the pandemic. People are really sharing their puzzle passion. We have, you know, I'm sure you know about um, all these people watching other people play e-games. And of course, of course. You know, I think we've had plus 20 puzzle hangouts where we send live puzzling on Twitch. And there's hundreds of people of every one of them sitting there, you know, listening and watching people do puzzles. You know, that never happened before. Um, So, you know, and and that's, of course, you know, for gaming, board gaming, we've done that for a while, but we've never done that for puzzles before. So there's, there's something bubbling there that I don't think is purely pandemic related. You know, there's a real passion there. I was just reading this morning that the Great Depression was a launch pad for a lot of popular hobbies and and games today that people were stuck at home because they couldn't afford to go out. And like, for instance, that's when Bridge really started to take off. But but I wanted to ask you a a non-puzzle question. I'm, I'm interested in the fact that you're from Sweden, which is a different culture than the American culture in, in, in a lot of ways. Have you seen big differences in the business culture? You know, it's a good question. I, you know, I worked seven years for in the U.S. before I started at Ravensburger, and I also worked in Belgium for about ten years, and then in Sweden. Uh, so, you know, Western the Western world is kind of where I'm coming from. 
I don't know. In in the US, I you know things are a little bigger. That has an impact, of course. You know, the retailers are bigger than the one that we're used to. They're more powerful in that sense. Um, the market is bigger. You know, if you have one hit, the hit is much bigger. I think that type of dynamic changes how you compete a little bit. There is a little more risk taking here, I would say, compared to what I'm used to. Now, I've worked in, in in international companies all the time, but if I compare a little bit management style and so on, you know, there's a concept that I love, which is about psychological safety as a management tool. Uh, you know, that means that uh, you want your teams to feel safe to make decisions and fail and, you know, not be driven by fear. I do see a lot of fear in how businesses are run in the U.S. I felt a lot of fear when I started to work here because people are a little more you know, direct. The labor laws are a little different. At times, I had a feeling that everyone was always scared to get fired when, you know, I was hoping that my team would feel that they were sleeping well, feeling that we're a great team together. And if something went wrong, we would talk about it. So I think there's a little difference there, more in the management style than maybe in how businesses performed, except for then that, you know, the winning ticket is much bigger here than it is if you work in a $9 million, you know, 9 million people Swedish market. I want to switch gears and talk a little bit about games, because obviously Ravensburger is known for their games. The first Ravensburger game that I ever played was when I was an exchange student to Germany many, many, many years ago. It was called Das Malefits, and I was delighted to see a picture of it on your website because we played that endlessly in the family that that I lived with. Do you guys have a philosophy of games? Ravensburger started around games. You know, the first game Ravensburger ever made in 1883, I think it was, was a license, early license game. They took the Jules Verne 80 days around the world and made it a, a board game. So the game still exists at the Ravensburger Museum in Ravensburg. You can see that first game. Uh, so there's a there's a true DNA of gaming here. I would actually take a step to the consumer here. You know, why I love games and I have yet to meet the person that doesn't have a good gameplay memory in their life. It seems like everyone somewhere had a great game experience. If that was because they came together, if that was because their parents gave them some attention, if that was because they felt belonging at some point, you know, my belief is that everyone has a great game experience somewhere in their memory. You know, based on that, it's kind of up to the industry now to make sure that all these people that are not gamer gamers, because we tend to make new games for gamers, All these other people that actually, for example, played games now during the pandemic, they went to the game aisle because they had this feeling within them somewhere that, you know, there was a great experience I once had. I want my kids to have that too. Maybe normally they don't take the time. You know, there are screens, people are busy. But, you know, that drive, that moment, I think is the future of games. It's the future of board games. Uh, because that's how we will bring more gamers to the business. And I think parents are ready for it. I think kids are ready for it. If we can make gaming much more, board gaming much more accessible, I still think people are scared of instruction manuals. I still, you know, that's why are the classic games selling so much? You know, it's because people know them. It's not necessarily what people like to play over and over and over, but we're not doing good of enough job to help people, you know, get into new games and learn new themes and understand how amazing it could be to move beyond, you know, your first Monopoly experience. So that said, creating games that is great at first play, really fun, but then has this replay value where, you know, at least we have aimed to make them even better the second and the third time you play them. 
that I think is the core to Ravensburger game. And this belief that gaming is just something that people want to do, just help them do it and they will love it. Are you at all active in digital puzzling or gaming or play? You know, since most of us spend most of our time in the digital sphere, we have to think about, you know, how that connects. Uh, Ravensburger historically tried to be an e-gamer and build digital games and, you know, take part in that market. I think we've changed our view here. And personally, my view is pretty much, you know, I like to take the example of a specialty retailer, a specialty toy store. What's most important to them in the past was a really good window. People walked by, they saw a great window and you walked into the store. That has just moved. Like if I'm going to go to a toy store, the first thing I do is to check them out online. I might not buy there, but the new window is the web version of the store. And that's when I feel, yeah, it's worthwhile my time to go downtown and, and go and visit them. So we have to work as a supplier here, uh, as a publisher, we have to work with specialty retailers, with the larger retailers in making sure that the window is there. And it's not always for e-commerce. It's, it's just the first place you meet the consumer is now digitally. And then where do you bring them from there? You know, and how do you do that in a good way? So I think that part of digitalization is just going to increase. We have to be really good at figuring out where we meet the consumers online and where we bring them. If they want to buy online, let them buy online. If they want an experience online on a Twitch live feed or whatever it is, let's bring them that. If they want to go to a store, let's work with the, our retail partners and help them have this kind of digital windows that will bring people into their stores. You know, so, so that I think is from a capturing the consumer perspective from a gameplay perspective we still find it really hard to combine uh, and be really successful in an experience that is based physically but has an app or a phone uh, consumers don't tend to like that i think that that will change we have example where we've had with think fun have done escape the room games where you have music and you get clues and you know have sound coming from a website as you play, you know, your game, you know, that brings a, a, a wider experience. Um, you know, you could see puzzles. We talked about that before. We actually heard from one of the largest online book resellers called us up and said, during the pandemic, people are puzzling and they're listening to books at the same time. Can we partner together? That's kind of digital and puzzling coming together. Very interesting. Um, yeah. So, so I, I think that digital will be a part also of the experience but maybe not always at the core of the experience, maybe more at the side uh, to make it more immersive. Several years ago, uh, a puzzle company, not you, did an AR treatment with the puzzles. So you would do the puzzle and then hold the phone over it. But it didn't really, and, and you would bring the puzzle to life in a certain way, but it didn't really succeed. And I think to your to your point, it's two very different experiences that don't necessarily meld together. A brand, and now, of course, I'm speaking, you know, for, you know, promoting myself here, but, you know, take a, take a very classic brand as Brio, you know, the classic, classic play pattern of, of train play and wooden train play. Amazing, has stood the test of time for 70 years, is more popular than ever. You know, what that team has done is to kind of try to integrate technology in a way that it's embedded, so it's not so visible, but it still increases the play value. So, you know, take for example, you know, it's called smart tech. So you can you, you can move these items to put them down in front of the train and the train goes backwards, or you record a sound, or when a train passes something that's Bluetooth technology that sends out a, a cow's noise when you pass the cow on, you know, on a side of the track. You know, these things are 
amazing technology in very classic play patterns that I think bring more value. The, the latest one is the steam train. I don't know if you've seen I've it. I've seen the steam train. It's oh. amazing. <laughs> I mean, isn't there, you know, here you have a wooden tray play pattern with a steam train with real steam coming out of the chimney. Of course, it's cold steam, so no one can get hurt. You know, we can't make enough of them at this point. It's just, you know, bringing immersiveness with technology. If it's, Richard, if it's digital or if it's just an embedded technology and staying away from screens or, you know, adding screens as a side mm-hmm. support, that is going to continue to grow. Right. It's technology that adds magic that enhances the play pattern and doesn't really shift the child's or the player's attention from one form, one medium to another. And that, that I think, is really important. 10, 15 years ago, we talked about Euro games as a, a kind of a niche part of the game market in the United States, and they were known for being more complex, more interesting in many ways. And today, that type of game is very much what a big part of the game market in the U.S. is about. Mm-hmm. So do you see big differences in how people play in the United States and how they play in other countries? Yeah, particularly in Germany. Actually, I do feel that the countries around Germany, you know, France, UK, Spain, Italy, and so on, they are more like the US. It's Germany that's very different. You know, in Germany, I think there's a culture of playing games that's just amazing. It's what families do, and they really appreciate the game mechanics. If if the game is is pretty okay and uh, you know movers are great and theme awesome but the mechanic is already existing th- that tends to do less good you know in, in germany you really have to be creative around the mechanics and be innovative around that while in the rest of the world if you have a great theme if you have a great license if you create the game that's awesome and creates a, an immersive experience you know take the example we've made jaws as a game if we make that authentic and people really feel like they're living the Jaws movie, but there's no real new game mechanic. There's existing game mechanics put in place in a clever way, but you, you really feel that you live the character of these players. We did the same thing for, for Jurassic Park. You know, we can talk about Villainous later. You know, if you can use well-known licenses and characters that people can kind of live the movie in or live the license in, that's super successful. That is a little less successful in Germany at times because there's no new gameplay. So I think that's maybe the the biggest difference I've seen. However, if you find the right licenses and, and the right application of them, also the Germans are getting charmed. So, so <laughs> slowly, slowly getting to them. But we try to come from both ways, you know, and that's what's so cool. I, you know, I have a big development team in Ravensburg that's been developing game, as we said, for you know, for for generations. Um, they continue to come from that aspect, but adding on more of that thematic approach that, you know, the U.S. has been so good at. And then we have the development teams in the U.S. that come from the other way that, you know, get influences with good game mechanics from our German colleagues, but are really, really good in putting in place a consumer experience that it's not movie-like, but it's, it's really, you know, living the experience that, that, that you put on the table. So we're really happy about actually looking at the game business as global now. Um, you know, we might, when we develop a new game now, have an art director based in, in France and a game developer based in Germany and the product creation as such being done out of Seattle. And that's one new game. And then it's produced either in our own factories or, you know, somewhere around the world. You know, it's really exciting to bring all of this type of things together, to try to capture both aspects of it. 
So you mentioned the game Villainous, which I'm a big fan of, and which was a Toady Award winner for Game of the Year for 2020. And it it's pretty complicated. It's it's beautiful. It's very much in the tradition of, of board games from the turn of the 20th century. It's beautifully done. It's got great gameplay, but it's a little bit more sophisticated than your typical chase game or shoots and ladders. Can you talk a little bit about the development of that with Disney? Because it really was a bit of a departure from a traditional Disney license. You know, we do a lot of work with all the big licensing players. The history here is really that the company Wonderforge that Ravensburger acquired 10, 12 years ago now, you know, they came to market because they saw a niche where if you put a license on a children's games and you actually made it authentic to that license and just did it more than just a license slapping, if you would use that word, that consumers and parents would react to that. And that worked really well. What we did with Villainous was to bring that concept to adults and say, let's let's try to do the same thing. And I, you know, so Disney has been open in allowing us to really try to build the equity of their IP as well as making a good game, uh, which also allows us to, you know, at times do a little departure from style guides. You know, we have to be to do things that makes that are interesting. You got to challenge the known a little bit. The Disney consumer loves when we do something that's unexpected, when they can do some discovery. Uh, Villainous, we should also mention, were, there was a three parts that, that make this come together. As a publisher, it was Ravensburger. As a licensor and you know, a very creative partner was Disney. And at the time, we also worked with FPC, that's now part of Funko Games, that was developing the games for us. So it was really a collaboration between three different aspects that worked really well. And then we think we have a little bit of a secret sauce on how we launch these type of products. Uh, and how we create buzz for them early on. We're not using the classic media to do this. We work very much with you know different type of classic grassroots and more digital grassroots activities to to create excitement in a small fan base. And then we hope that that fan base will you know will be engaged and spread the word. And that that worked really well with Villainous. And we've then used that for almost a dozen of other games that's been successful after that. I don't know the, the, the data here, but when you know we have we have a turnover on Villainous globally now. This is a success in every country we put it in, uh, of over twenty million dollars in twenty twenty. Uh, I don't know a franchise of games that's been growing that fast. But then it comes to the point. It's a little deeper, you know. When we follow up with consumers, one out of five is not having a great experience. It's not it's not the game you should normally start with. So if you're a Disney fan that's not a gamer, and it's come back to what we talked about before. This is not the most accessible game if you never played a game before. You know, we think about game journeys for consumers. You know, there's probably another game that we would recommend before you play Villainous if you never played a game before. But if you're a casual gamer and you've played games before, then Villainous is awesome and it brings you to the type of gameplay that uh, where you can go deeper um, and where you can have a really good experience cross generations too. Let's uh, take a walk behind the curtain for a minute and talk about what's going on with logistics, the supply chain, and inflation, maybe give us some idea where you're where you're currently manufacturing, and what materials you generally use, and what's been happening in terms of cost of goods and logistics challenges. As an old company uh, that's been around for a long time, you know, uh, we have our own factories. When you have your own factories, that takes up a lot of your time. You think about that, so. Uh, we've done a really good transition from being, I think, more of a manufacturing-driven toy company to be a, a much more consumer-driven toy company over the last decade. 
so we're starting to see that that has opened up for us to make you know what we call make and buy choices. So we always have the choice of make it ourselves, but depending on the type of game, uh, we also choose to produce externally when it matters for us. And that could be time to market, that could be price, that could be a lot of different aspects of why we choose. But for every product at a certain point in development, we make the call, do we make it ourselves or do we have someone else make it for us? What's best for the consumer? That's for games. For puzzles, we have decided to make every puzzle we make ourselves. You know, we have, I think, a quality experience in puzzles that's unrivaled, and we don't feel that it fits our brand to take any risks on that quality. During the pandemic, we've had, you know, it was infinite demand for puzzles, and most many of our, of our competitors ran to new production sources around the world. We decided not to. You know, we we almost doubled our internal capacity of puzzles and still couldn't fill the demand. We actually still have challenges to fill all the demand even now. It's a wonderful problem. <laughs> it's a wonderful problem, but it's also really frustrating for retailers. You know, our, our, our puzzles are very productive. We make them from a fit, feel, finish in a very specific way. And we also create the imagery and the story around each puzzle in a very unique way that is Ravensburger developed. So it's frustrating not to be able to support all the specialty retailers out there. And retailers in general have not received all the puzzles they wanted during the pandemic, and they still don't get it. So that's super frustrating. The consumer wants this product. And we're continuing to add on capacity since you know we do have a bullish belief that this is not just going to change. We believe that puzzle business is just growing from a different base now. You know, that's on the production side. The whole supply chain side of toys and games is really interesting. Uh, we grew by acquisition. You know, we bought Wonderforge. We bought ThinkFun. We have, you know, integrated them fully into our business. We ended up with four different warehouses, some operated by ourselves, some by 3PLs in North America. Uh, we just made the decision a year ago to, to bring it all together into one system now. Uh, so we're, we're doing that this year, making sure that we can then have a, a robust system that we can continue to grow from. You know, we've, we've doubled the business in the last three years in North America, and we were not set up to continue that growth if we didn't make the big investments in the backend that, we, that we're now doing. Even if we're consumer-driven, we got to have a backend system that can support both the growth and the type of services that are, that are, that are coming up and that, that are requested. Robinsberger has grown by acquisition. You've acquired some really wonderful brands that you mentioned, Wonderforge, which I loved, and ThinkFun. You, you make Gravitrax, which is a puzzle construction game set. You do a lot of different things. What's your strategy moving ahead? How are you going to continue to grow? So we will do both. We feel that in the categories that we are in, where we're really a leading player, when we were a leading player in puzzles, we feel that we're certainly a leading player in games. We're a leading player in, you know, preschool open play, which is Brio. And Gravitrax is a, an extension of that. It's open play for a somewhat older kid. You know, Brio ends at six, seven years old. That's exactly where Gravitrax starts. So we see enormous opportunity to focus and deliver within these business segments as we look at. We've built a global organization that, you know, can easily add on. We, for example, do um, arts and crafts in Europe. We're not doing that in the U.S. If we, you know, when we feel we have the right offer, you know, that, you know, that would be an opportunity for us. So we're looking for, from an acquisitions perspective, both to see what we can do within the industry and the categories that we're in and businesses we're in, but we're also looking outside to see where we can go. 
It all comes back to the same point, though. You know, we want to make sure that we develop things that are under this idea of playful development. We want to be in something for the long run. That's what this company do. So when we invest, it's, you know, to be there for decades. If someone asked me what's a big trend coming up, I would say that children's games, for example, is going to have a roaring comeback. It's been under pressure for a few years. I think that's, you know, one thing that we think is going to be super excited to be in. And we're, you know, that's the core of where our business started. We don't think that model of TV to drive demand is working anymore. So that's, you know, one of the reasons why retailers have been holding back on children's games. But I think that there will be innovation and change to that driven by the consumer. What I love about that is that it's going all the way back to Robinsberger's original roots as an experiential education company. And I just I just think that here we are all these years later and you're still doing the same thing because the, the props may change, the technology changes, but children's needs don't change that much from uh, generation to generation. No, and they're pretty global. You know, there might be different educational systems in different countries, But the way people play and soft skills like problem solving, logic reasoning, deduction, these type of skills are becoming more important where maybe hard skills like reading and math has has always been there. I think games are perfect, you know, and ThinkFun as our acquisition was just based on that. Okay, Philip. So we're going to ask you the question we ask all our guests on the Playground podcasts. We want you to tell us a secret. I have a personal secret that I can share, which is related to all of this. I've started to write a book related to this subject of playfulness. So the working title is Playfulness for Performance. So a serious book about playfulness as a way of managing your teams. It relates back a little bit to your question earlier, Richard. What's different between US and Europe in in, in how to do business? You know, one thing that's certainly something in common, I believe, is that when you create an environment and a management style that has an aspect of playfulness in it, that liberates people to be more creative, uh, to take more risk, and, and maybe over time also to have a better balance in life in total. So uh, playfulness as a management tool, very early stage is hopefully a book that one day I can finish um, and, and put up. Philip Frank, CEO of Ravensburger North America, global head of games. As always, I love getting to spend time and talk to you. So glad we get to share this with our audience. Thank you for being so generous with your time today. We loved having you on. It was great. Thank you so much, guys. Thanks, Richard. Thanks, Krista. Enjoyed it. This is the Playground Podcast, and we'll be right back with the end cap. And now we come to the part of the show that we call the end cap, where Richard and I talk about some issues that are top of mind. And Richard, this week we've got an issue that's making a splash. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you're quite right, Chris. More containers are falling overboard from ships. <laughs> and it appears that the culprit in terms of cargo overboard and in terms of really slowing up the supply chain are appears to be these these huge super container ships, uh, like the one that just uh, clogged up the Suez Canal. Right. Chris, I was shocked to see that when they stack containers on these ships, they stack them as much as 200 feet high. 
That's like a 20-story building. Chris, you've got these stacks that are 200 feet high, and then you have container ships, particularly the big ones, that due to the way the ships are built, they become destabilized in such a way as called parametric rolling. Now, I'm not going to go into too much what it's all about. Just to say that the ship rocks back and forth pretty, uh, like up to a 30-degree angle. Wow. Uh, in in heavy water, heavy weather. So you can imagine a 200-foot stack of containers going back and forth like that. And so they 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 fall overboard. And and the other thing I was kind of surprised by, Chris, this, this is really something, that these giant container ships, they, they bring them into port, and it takes a long time to unload them. And what is happening is because they need that spot, for the next ship coming in, they will sometimes force these ships to leave without reloading. Oh, wow. So it's kind of like when you're on an airplane and you arrived early, yay. <laughs> and then you find out there's still a plane in your gate. Right. <laughs> you, know, you have to, it's the same thing. So, uh, and then they say that they're slow. They're really slow. So if they get behind, they can't catch up. Wow, it's kind of like Jenga on the high seas to for <laughs> at a certain point. But the other thing is that container ships, those big container ships can carry somewhere in the neighborhood of 22 to 30,000 containers, which is twice the size of the container ships at the beginning of the of the 2000s. And what I was thinking about with the Suez Canal last week when we were watching that happen, was that the boats got bigger, but the infrastructure hasn't become bigger to accommodate those. So these kinds of problems may continue. And maybe if it's a straight shot across the Pacific, you can put, 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 put along. But if you're going through a canal, you may have some trouble. I've really been thinking about this lately. And for all the um, moaning and rendering of garments over this, <laughs> uh, it seems to me that the supply chain overall works really works pretty well, and we notice it because it's not working as well right now. Right. Most of the time, it does and delivers an enormous amount of product all around the world that we don't really notice until a ship gets stuck in the Suez Canal. Or- it's true, and, and I guess we're going to have to redo the song, I want to get you on a slow boat to China. Yeah, but not with parametric uh, roll. Exactly, exactly. Well, we're going to see what's going to happen next with this. I know that it's going to be something that's going to work itself out. But in the meantime, watch where your containers are, for heaven's sake. This is the Playground Podcast. I'm Chris Byrne with my co-host, Richard Gottlieb. We are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, the toy guy, marketing and media agency, Chizcom, and Precise.tv. And we will see you next time.